type in the search best cult movies of all time and you'll be rewarded with a vast list of films covering eras and times as far back as the 1920s. And although these films used to require a cult, a dedicated following of people determined to preserve and promote something which they saw of value despite its shortcomings and lack of success, in 2023 virtually all of these films are visible within a few clicks. Those true cultists, those who attend midnight screenings dressed up as characters from Rocky Horror or who throw spoons at movie screens projecting Tommy Wiseau's The Room, they still linger. And it's evident to see why. The bar for entry to watch a cult film is quite low. It's relatively easy to sit down and watch a film that the mainstream considered bad, divisive or unpleasant on release. Often it's funny sometimes uplifting, but essentially all you have to do is sit down and spend two hours of your life looking at something. Even if you really hate it, you're still likely to finish watching. Video games as cult classics have, by comparison, a significantly higher bar of entry. For a start, games that performed poorly commercially are likely to be hard to track down or maybe locked onto old hardware. Conker's Bad Fur Day for the Nintendo 64 is certainly a cult classic, but to play the original version, you'd either have to own the cartridge or track one down on eBay. And before you start, I'd recommend you get out your wallet and you make sure it's deep. You can project Hexen, a film from 1922, onto a big screen and show it to a room of people who will likely think it still looks pretty good. Plug your Nintendo 64 into your old TV and show off Conquer's Bad Fur Day from 2001, and most people will wonder why they aren't just playing something new. Then tell them that they have to play it for around 10 hours with outdated controls and mechanics just to get to the ending, and you can see how the bars of entry here are not equal. Watching a cult classic is easy. Playing a cult classic for 35 hours is less so. And very frequently, these games exist as cult classics because while they have significant value in what they say or depict, they may be highly compromised or broken mechanically. They might control or be optimized so poorly that they break down while running or are unwieldy or even unfun to play. So keeping all of this in mind, I'm going to recommend a true cult classic video game in Deadly Premonition today. Commercially unsuccessful on release, the game's underground momentum has essentially kept the career of its director, Hidetaka Suohiro, afloat and has even provided it a sequel. From start to finish, if you want to watch every cutscene and complete every side mission, you're in for around 20 to even 35 hours of playtime here. And throughout that time, you're going to have to withstand some pretty shonky driving, crushing frame rate collapses and the occasional total game crash. Followers of the cult don't need to be persuaded, they're already on board. But for those listening who haven't yet embarked on their first playthrough of Deadly Premonition, I have to say that yes, while those problems obviously don't sound great, don't let that put you off. This game is worth playing, and this cult is worth joining. Welcome to Green. it is a collaborative effort of many talents in many roles coming together. But its director, the aforementioned Hidetaka Suehiro, also referred to as Sweri or Sweri 65, is of the vein of those Japanese video game auteur directors like Hideo Kojima, Suda51 and Tobonobu Itagaki, in that his ideas, thoughts, style and interests permeate the game. 
the most clear interest and inspiration from the outset is David Lynch's Twin Peaks series. And while I say this as a person who hasn't seen Twin Peaks, I still know enough about it to see where the inspiration comes from. A coffee-obsessed FBI agent in a small town, surrounded by forests and embroiled in a murder investigation of a young woman. Things having a surrealist supernatural twinge while saxophones blare as the agent gets deeper into the case and is visited in their dreams by a strange cast of characters that pose more questions than they answer. So far, I could be describing either Twin Peaks or Deadly Premonition. And in a way, I actually don't want to watch Twin Peaks now from a small fear that I'd just see how many notes Deadly Premonition was taking while peeking over Twin Peaks' shoulder. But where Deadly Premonition differs is through the lens in which it is viewed and created, because while Twin Peaks was created by David Lynch, an American, Hidetaka Suahiro has created the town of Greenville as a visitor. A visitor with a passion, and one who's spent a lot of time and real-life investigative effort to research and travel and learn, but still one who is shaping their perceptions and realities through the lens of a hugely different culture they grew up within. A Japanese player of Deadly Premonition exploring the game's world may say, this American town is weird. While their American counterpart might be more likely to think, this is a weird American town. And it's exactly this feel, this fantastic mix and clash that I think makes this world and so many other video game worlds so appealing to American and Western audiences. Zelda is a fantasy setting that feels so strange and so different to mainstream Western fantasy depictions. Silent Hill 2 is set in an American town with American actors and yet is filled with Japanese horror elements and depictions. Deadly Premonition is a love letter to the small American town. But the town feels so weird. In some senses, the scale seems painfully realistic. The hotel where your character stays and most often starts the day is located outside of town, near a lake. And so most days start with your character driving into town to meet with your fellow investigators at the sheriff's office or the town hall to chair a meeting. The drive is a bit laborious, but also feeds into the sense of realism. Then you get into town and a huge number of the buildings are labeled market or something mart with only one school and housing that sometimes seems real and sometimes seems like a neighborhood created on the Sims. Huge, lavish houses next to small, pokey properties. One school and an enormous hospital located far away from the town center at the terminus of a dead-end road. There is an idea that the town's population is on the decline after the closure of a local industry, but there's also a nightly cabaret bar. There's one diner where you can eat lunch that seems relatively teeming with people, but then barely any cars on the roads traveling to the hundreds of houses. It feels off, which itself is intriguing. Even if it was filled with NPCs, Greenville is already inspired and designed to be something which is rarely shown in games. The added weirdness is just a bonus. One personal bonus for myself is actually grew up in a suburb called Greenvale. So hearing somebody say, let's meet at the Greenvale Community Center in this game sits even more weirdly in my head. Adding to that feeling of strange cultural tangling, essentially the first thing you do in this American town is crash your car and shoot monsters. Very Japanese folklore inspired monsters that wouldn't look out of place in a film series like The Ring or The Grudge. The game doesn't really explain who they are or why they're there ever, but their design feels like a strange fit. This theme continues with later monster designs, such as the woman who crawls on the ceilings and walls and is essentially a monster from a game series like Siren, set in the Japanese countryside, and the second to last boss fight, who evolves into a demon with the appearance of a Japanese Oni. Not a Western biblical devil, as you might expect from this small American town. Whatever the intention or truth, these features actually make the game and the wider world so much more interesting. Seeing unfamiliar things, being confused but interested, this is what travel, learning and life is all about. And with a creator like Swery, someone who bravely puts their own personality and experience and understanding into their artwork for the world to see, the outcome is for us to play and feel a world that, while we might be able to imagine or recognize, feels different enough to intrigue 
and provoke. Back to that opening sequence in the game. The beginning of the game introduces us to our main character and right away we're presented with one of the game's ideologies. Why do one weird thing when you could do 50 weird things all at once? Our playable protagonist, FBI agent Francis York Morgan, is driving a car while smoking and also typing on a laptop. His hair is quite neat, except for a curved half crescent cut into the right side of his hairline, and on the same side of his face he has a scar below his eye. Adding to his multitasking actions, he is also tapping the left side of his head and speaking to someone called Zack, who we can't see or hear, and who doesn't have any dialogue that appears as subtitles. So this is a lot to take in, right? We've got a character with multiple distinct facial features, multiple habits, a highly unusual name, and they appear to be talking to another character called Zack, who is either imagined or a representation of us as the player. Adding to the strangeness with names, throughout the game, characters will refer to the character as York, Mr. Morgan, Agent Morgan, Francis York Morgan, Agent York, or Francis. All while he taps his head and talks to another character called Zack, who the other characters in the game are as equally puzzled about as we are. It is a lot to take in, and it can be hard to drop in and start playing as a character who is already so defined as York is. And York certainly is a defined character. He's a tenured FBI agent who solved a number of highly grisly cases, of which he is willing to share the details with his lunch-eating colleagues. He, in turn, seems highly able to perceive the emotions of others, and yet totally unable to react in an expected way. He's highly unpredictable, one moment calmly smoking a cigarette and sarcastically quipping in the face of tremendous danger, the next exuding extreme joy over something mundane and then screaming at the feet of a down colleague. Though the latter moments mentioned are rare, and for much of the game, the York we play as has a cool yet whimsical unflappability that trolls most of the characters, enemies, and world he interacts with. Cutscenes with him talking to characters feel like a recording of a dialogue tree from a game like Mass Effect, where somebody has chosen the player to be as dismissive, rude, or unconventional as much as possible. Adding to this is York's early game option to talk to Zack, or the player, when on long drives. Getting into a car and travelling a few metres down the road triggers a talk prompt which sends York into long talks with Zack about the merits of films like Superman 2 or Ramones gigs at CBGB's. I came to like playing as York immensely, but right off the bat, he is a lot to take in, and it can take a while to properly warm up to him or even begin to get him, if that is at all possible to do. The game itself operates like this. Eventuating into something that clicks into rhythm and fun, but appears at first like a barrage of ideas. Too many, too different, and all at once. The systems of the game and gameplay elements are in the same vein as this as well. The beginning section of the game really reminded me of playing Dark Souls, in that, intended or not, the game revels in presenting you with too much to deal with and withholds conventional explanations of what is required. In no way does it feel as though you're cheating if you look up a guide on the internet or have someone give you help and assistance. Deadly Premonition is a highly unrealistic life sim. Agent York needs to complete missions where he shoots ghouls and must avoid being struck by them to conserve his health bar. Cliched gaming so far. But York has more than just a health bar. He also has a stress bar something that increases as he drives quickly, is hiding from axe murderers in cabinets, or plays darts. This gauge decreases as you stop driving quickly, the axe murderer leaves the room you're hiding in, or the game of darts finishes. Again, strange, but still all good, and quite easy to manage, especially as these two gauges are presented on the heads-up display on screen. But then there are two other gauges also tracking York, hunger and sleep. As the day continues on, York, much like all of us, grows hungry and tired. And so periodically he will need to be instructed to eat food to refill his hunger gauge 
or sleep, drink coffee, soft drinks, or alcohol to refill his sleep gauge. The food found early in the game is rather pithy in how much it allows York to refill his hunger gauge, and also bizarre. He might pick up an onion next to a shack, which replenishes a small bit of hunger, a lollipop in a rundown sawmill that barely registers a flicker, or he might open a cabinet in a hospital that has an entire plate of smoked salmon, greatly helping him to feel nourished. Some items stack in your inventory, but many much better than others. While others can be bought in stores around town, but seem almost random in their pricing. A new player might be confused as to why they're picking up so much food in the early section of their run-through, and equally flummoxed as to why consuming food seems to in no way assist with their health recovery. A new player might be confused as to why they're picking up so much food in the early section of their run-through, and equally flummoxed as to why consuming food seems to in no way assist their health recovery. Not helping with that confusion is that the two visual displays tracking hunger and sleep are located on the pause menu. The pause menu itself being a bizarre apparition of colors and objects, including a living deer head. It's here that the player can see a television set with two bars tracking how full and awake they currently are. On top of this, the game does have a basic economy. You are paid a salary daily and can also accrue extra money through activities like killing enemies, picking up floating badges, referred to as agent's honor, and collecting trading cards of characters throughout town. Again here, we have a mix, like the gauges, a mix of cliched gaminess and light but specific life sim. York also needs to shave his face daily and change his suits periodically, otherwise he will start growing shabby stubble and stink, respectively. The latter of these will elicit financial penalties, but the penalties are so small that the player could ignore them. They will then, however, have to watch as York is constantly swarmed by a buzzing cloud of flies. It's this unwieldy mix of responsibilities that can make a player's early interactions with deadly premonitions seem like they've signed a contract with a few extra pages than they were aware of. Most players pick up the controller and are aware that the game is weird, a bit janky, and undeniably different. Few though realize that to participate fully, they are going to have to shuffle their playable character's suits. Watch that they don't hold down the sprint button too long and stuff York full of coffee and onions. But while at the beginning, these systems can lead to confusion or being overwhelmed by including them, I felt much closer to York than many other characters who I have followed over their shoulder. I wanted York to sleep regularly, to not stink and to wear suits suitable for the occasion. I could endlessly spawn lollipops and gradually fill up his hunger gauge, but it felt like a better option to take him to the diner for lunch, or at least offer him something like that filling but ludicrously expensive turkey sandwich. You don't have to do any of this, of course, but by including it, the player has the option of spending that little extra time with York. A very weird human, but still a human. Considering what the game does require you to do, it can be a little surprising what it doesn't. You don't need to take York to a toilet or shower at any point, or brush his teeth or get a haircut, but it probably says something of the game that I did try wandering York into a bathroom to see if there was some magical extra hidden gauge for that that I had missed. Another gauge that you'll need to keep an eye on is the one measuring the petrol tank of the car you're in. Driving in Deadly Premonition is like the sound quality in the film Birdemic. Awful, but a part of a cult classic and therefore rolled in together with the enjoyment. There are a number of different cars to unlock and drive in Deadly Premonition, all with different stats to do with speed and handling and all feel completely out of control. It is hard to state this, but somehow the driving in Deadly Premonition is both unresponsive and highly over-responsive. It can feel like you're trying to perform a three-point turn with a cruise ship, yet you can also be driving in a straight line down a straight road and suddenly pitch to the side, rolling your car several times over as it careens off-road. Cars have a damage gauge as well as one for petrol, but unless you're going off-road for extended periods, it's unlikely to be a factor. 
Again, mixing this life sim realism with hyper game logic is how you get your car repaired. You get it washed, either by an overtly sexual dancing caricature or her boyfriend who, rather than dancing, just spits on your windshield. It's hard to call the driving fun, it's easier to call the driving funny. Yet, despite containing what most would consider subpar driving gameplay at best, Deadly Premonition not only locks you into driving sections quite regularly, but also promotes the chance to show off its creation with the addition of time trial races. These races, in which a copyright avoiding cover of Green Day's American Idiot barely passes the lawsuit test, blares as you struggle to rein your car around suburban streets and parking lots and are entirely optional. And yet, the enjoyment at conquering them outmatched many softer challenges posed by other games. Maybe it's the feeling of overcoming the genuine inadequacies of the driving, driving so unpredictable it feels like the game is cheating. Maybe that the sense of ultimate victory is enhanced. It's akin to winning an amateur hurdle race with broken ankles. It's an achievement, but it's also unnecessarily hard. And ultimately, there's no reason for it except to say that it shouldn't have been possible or even recommended. And yet it was done. Strangely then, one of the things that you do not have to manage is ammunition. The very first gun that you hold has unlimited ammo. This has a very strange effect on a game that essentially contains combat sections where you are locked into combat with undead horrors. Without the stress of worrying if you have enough bullets to manage the crowds, you can fire away freely, and so the usual panic and release of survival horror, the scavenging of material to empty the room of enemies, is gone. Replacing it is a strange situation of the game taking the sections reasonably seriously, but also allowing you to run around in almost a cheat mode from the word go. Are these sections fun? Yeah, to me, but not initially, and here's the rub. And also the big long wind up to that Dark Souls comparison. Dark Souls isn't much fun until you figure out what you're doing or are given a helping hand to lead you to a pathway that somebody tells you works out. Deadly Premonition has repetitive combat and systems that seem intent on dragging you down and getting in your way until you complete a few side missions and unlock new weapons like the unlimited SMG or the unbreakable one-shot kill electric guitar. Now, York is gliding down hospital corridors, striking those ghouls straight back to their graves with a six-string. And you realize that with the tone of this game, it's less Resident Evil 4 and more Dead Rising. At least, it can be. You could also stack your inventory, like a classic Silent Hill, using melee weapons until they degrade and avoiding or missing side missions so that you never expand your list of unlimited ammo weapons and have to rely on pickups and purchases from the gun store. You might greatly prefer to play that way, but by having the player have access to those things that most games and game designers would see as breaking the game from the outset, Deadly Premonition allows itself to be operated with a lot more freedom and accessibility than many other titles. Players will always do their best to maximize their outcomes, no matter the limitations designed for them to play with. So why not just give the first pistol unlimited ammo and just let them rip? And yes, while a point could be made that the unlimited ammo is a sign of slack design or implementation, maybe a late concession to a game that was proving hard to balance, it's still a brave and refreshing choice to leave it in and ship it that way. mention the phrase side missions. This game, while following a chapter and act structure of the central plot, also allows you to complete activities on the side. 
Actually figuring out how to find and activate the side missions is less than intuitive based on standard gaming formula though. As York continues following the main case, time in the story progresses by moving the game through 26 chapters, themselves contained within six episodes as well as a prologue and epilogue. Completing these chapters is uneven. York may have a series of tasks to complete or a single short one. Side missions appear during these chapters, but only during certain ones and at a certain time of day, often with certain weather conditions of the world being met. Knowing what chapter you're playing in and what side missions are available requires judicious studying of the menu screen, in which you have to bring up the world map and press a trigger. Intuitive. Your other option is to get assistance with a guide, which I happily did. I read Shakespeare with cliff notes, watch Japanese movies with subtitles, and play Deadly Premonition side missions with a guide. And it greatly enhanced and unlocked the experience for me. The rewards from completing these side missions range from minor and mundane to completely overhauling the gameplay. Completing George's early and relatively simple side mission unlocks fast travel. Emily's three side missions, only available to be completed until the halfway point in the game, unlocks pervasive and free healing for your health gauge. These are huge modifications to the gameplay. It cannot be stated how necessary a fast travel item is in a game with a map this large, sparse, and filled with barely drivable vehicles. So from a gameplay perspective, the side missions, at least some of them, are highly recommended. But do they add anything to the story, the characters, the depth of the world? And what do you actually do to complete them? Greenbelt takes a decidedly Shenmue approach to side missions. The narrative knows that Agent York is a busy man, helming a murder investigation in a small town with supernatural weirdness and a killer at large, but it also wants to show him organising boxes around in the storage room of a local supermarket to help out a store owner who possesses the type of pushy charm only seen in small towns. York's acceptance and completion of these tasks is therefore filled with references for the fact that he should probably be doing something else. But they straddle the gameplay line of being both zen to do and almost meta-commentary on side mission construction itself. Agent York almost certainly shouldn't have time to be collecting flowers in the rain or driving home a one-shoed woman obsessed with the rapidly decreasing temperature of her crockpot, but he is a video game protagonist. So why wouldn't he? The five missions centered around the woman with the pot are particularly noteworthy, both in their banality and inspiration. Each mission starts, continues, and ends the same. York comes across roaming Sigourney, one shoe off, stomping up and down the street with kitchen mittens on and a pot in her hands. Distressed about the pot cooling down, she implores you to drive her home. York obliges, his secret agenda to find out the contents of the pot. Aside from the previously mentioned close to wretched driving, these sections are littered with Sigourney repeating two to three audio clips endlessly, and they end with long master student dissertations about understanding one's place and moving with patient pace. More questions are asked than answers are given, and the game seems to say that that's the way life is and should be. If York was going to take any time away, while being employed to solve a murder and catch a killer, is driving a woman home holding a pot any better than delivering letters or helping with cooking ingredients? All the side quests are equally ridiculous. This one just wears a bigger, more obvious badge. But aren't we always just transporting characters from A to B? Does it matter who and why? It's all just inputs being interpreted by code and displayed on a screen. Ultimately, does it matter, the task? This is quest construction at its most sarcastic and overt. Drive this lady with the pot home. Do it five times. You didn't actually think you'd find out what's in the pot, did you? Strange and meta moments like these are why a generation fell in love with Kojima. Swery's cult crowd can be attributed to moments like these too. The most wonderful part is the honesty and familiarity we all know or know of a person like this in our town or city. For the town I lived in as a teenager, 
That was the man pushing the supermarket trolley filled with toothpaste as he endlessly brushed his teeth. Now where I live, it's the man walking around with the child-sized carrot statue. In Greenvale, it's Sigourney. One shoe on, always holding her pot, complaining that it's cooling down. Familiarity is extended to the wider cast of characters in Deadly Premonition, but usually through the lens of archetypes or heavily inspired source material. Emily is a small-town girl with a heart of gold, somewhat hidden beauty, and a troubled family past. Passing a more than believably unintentional resemblance to Naomi Watts, she goes on to act as a love interest for York in a way which is much more interesting and constructed for him than it is for her. George is the hardened, no-nonsense local sheriff, also with a dark family past revealed over the course of the game. While we were introduced to these two characters at the beginning, and they will go on to play major roles in shaping all parts of the story, the game soon accelerates and begins introducing a wheelchair-bound, gas-mask-wearing man who speaks through his immaculately dressed assistant who conveys his messages in often quite particularly tortured rhyme. There are also twin boys written as though they were homeschooled on Mars who appear as angels in dream scenes. There's a gravekeeper who appears to be a zombie from a century ago and a group of four beautiful young women, one murdered before York arrives in town with the others lining up as almost inevitable future targets. The townsfolk are all strange, sometimes overtly and sometimes in their dialogue, movement or purpose. Almost all of them share at least one scene or moment with York that contains a line of outrageous dialogue, a ludicrously unexpected but expectedly ludicrous plot twist or wonderfully over-the-top line delivery that guarantees them to join the pantheon of cult moments in this cult game overflowing with cult. The man in the wheelchair, Harry, has such an astounding amount of strangeness to him that his late moment reveal that he actually has a different surname and is in fact the father of George is just a small splash in a sea of churning reveals and revelations far more supersized and jaw-dropping to even register a fair reaction for it. Despite all this, York seems determined to outdo the weirdness of the town folk and despite remaining relatively straight-laced and composed, delivers lines with facial expressions that force all around him to be taken back. The people who live in Greenvale are weird, but they're all so weird, so littered with habits and quirks that it bends the world into a new normal. At one stage, it appears as though having a dark past is a prerequisite for citizenship. Though it certainly aids in the story construction of a murder mystery where the killer is hiding in plain sight. Whether or not the characters or writing is good is a dull discussion. They are memorable, people are attached to them, and they evoke feelings and discussion. Those are all reasons enough to consider the characters of Deadly Premonition to be a success. Games and wider media often have a memorable moment or a key quote that fans hold up as a secret handshake or a safe, mutually understood reference to offer in conversation. Deadly Premonition is drowning in them. Multiple characters have numerous encounters with York that are almost always filled with some sort of memorable strangeness or post-human line delivery that allows it to be a light of recognition and shared joy when discussing it with other players of the game. Most will experience York and Polly Oxford sharing an encounter across an overly long table, Polly constantly mishearing as the character model flails about like a sim caught in a single repetitive action. York ends this scene, in this cavernous room, by reading divination through the milk in his coffee, all making this a wonderful, off-kilter, early-world encounter that players can enjoy before being overly intimidated to the point of being deterred from pressing on with the game. But by pressing on, the player adds a richer collection of these moments to their deck of cards. Harry's Sinner Sandwich, York continually entering into graphic detail about past cases as his colleagues attempt to eat, Thomas careening around a clock tower in a gown screaming obscenities, Emily and Cason sprinting, her elbows thundering back and forth as he waddles at a sped up pace behind a trail sniffing dog as almost certainly the best and funkiest music in the entire game is playing. Some games put their best material up front. The truth with Deadly Premonition is that 
while it may seem the same applies, in reality, there is scattered gold throughout, and those willing to stay the course, learn the systems, and glide past the jank are well rewarded. But don't feel as though this is a game that you have to push through. The true reward of this game is the feeling of clicking together. This game does click like all good games do. Overbearing and overbearingly strange at the beginning, sure, the systems of this game, while well, atypical, are not difficult to master. And once you figure it out, or you're told how to figure it out, York becomes a fast traveling master of this world, far removed from tiredness or hunger, juggling through clean suits and skidding around corners in his fully upgraded and indestructible car. It is fun to play. Really, it is, ironically, but then also not at all ironically. And as you grow closer to York and the characters, as you have his demands and gauges under control, the story continues whirring like a spinning coil offering flashes of resolution before continuing on with more twists. and something truly original. It is inspired by a number of texts and cultural experiences and expectations, and it steals from across the board. As mentioned, Twin Peaks gets heavily lifted from in terms of character establishment and world building, but built upon that is an almost flashing strobe of other inspirations. There's an extended mill section early on, with York travelling deeper and deeper into a decrepit mill, filled with the undead and an invincible stalker that continues on, up and down industrial ladder journeys, down winding corridors that you know will lead to no good, and this feels very much like late 2000s Resident Evil. Soon after, we have an almost impossible crime scene investigation, feeling like The X-Files or a supernatural episode of CSI. The strobe flicks again, and now we're in the Saw franchise, a character strung up and dying, but still momentarily alive and suspended by ropes. Unfortunately, by attempting to free her, the contraption is in fact activated, and her doom is sealed in a grisly end of screaming pain. Remarkably, nothing close to this happens again. Our killer seems either inconsistent or inspired by movies, but only momentarily, switching across franchises. Is this a slasher movie? Gore porn? Supernatural horror? Cosmic horror? It's all these things. And many more, for moments. It's a pastiche of short attention, a homage to love of many things, and as a player, it keeps you on your toes. Quite literally, everything in this world is possible, and the rules change depending on the moment. There is violence here, often with an unbearable backstory or consequence, but rarely an on-screen depiction that will cause anyone with a modern amount of normal desensitization to be too disturbed. The graphics here are at a time where budget and technology delivered something disturbing in the sense of the unintended, or unavoidable, but knowing these characters and understanding what they are saying, hearing the mostly very well-delivered and often hysterical voice performances, and there is horror here. And holding true to the adage of unpredictability, it's often followed up with a strange conversation or break back to gameplay, you instructing York to eat multiple hot dogs as a soundtrack of happy whistling and an upbeat guitar strum. The story is good, if you like stories that both harken and twist on familiar genre tropes, as well as present twists designed more to provoke than reward. There are some very predictable things that occur in Deadly Premonition, as well as others that 
absolutely cannot be predicted. The story and world were not even designed fairly to predict them, and so some may cry, plot hole, or weird didn't get it, that's fine. Complaining about plot holes is more often than not a safe game for the unimaginative. If your problem with a space opera is that an element of the timeline is fuzzy or that motivations for characters seem unrealistic, despite the fact that it depicts a galaxy of aliens who conveniently all breathe the same air and speak English, then enjoy your life. But usually plot holes occur because the text wants to present you with something more interesting. And if in the moment you are interested, then it has succeeded, which Deadly Premonition does. By the end of Deadly Premonition, the murder is solved, the question to who Zack is is answered, and York's family tragedy is revealed and tied together with the other mysteries about the town. The killer is George. And while there are red herrings to push you away from believing it is him, there are regular herrings too. Replaying the game knowing who the killer is doesn't really reveal a compilation of great aha moments. More of a horrible sense of being saddled with a murder sadist for extended driving sections or lunch breaks. In fact, the major revelations of the seedy to hideous truths of the antagonists make revisiting this game an extended practice in revisiting the uncomfortable. George, the stern sheriff, being revealed as a killer of multiple women, many young, and many whom he was involved with sexually, makes a revisited playthrough where you're laughing with him over lunch in the middle of a case disturbing. As does the fact that most of his actions come from his unrequited love for the deputy sheriff Emily, a person he can't have, so he forces those around him into costumed shapes resembling her. One of those people is Thomas the meek savant cook who is, towards the end, presented as a red herring for murderer, but is in fact just a pawn, hopelessly in love with George and used by him as a substitute for Emily. There is a strange handling of Thomas's character here. On the one hand, there is an obvious spotlighting of this man in a dress, careening madly around a clock tower, screaming obscenities at Emily that the audience is supposed to react to with hysterics and disgust, which in itself is more than tired and unhelpful. But the characters in no way react with anything but sympathy and normalcy. And by the end, where Thomas is depicted as a spirit along with the other victims, at peace, in his red dress, the game seems to abandon any idea that this is a hysterical notion at all. But in fact, Thomas is just like the others and was taken advantage of. George doesn't receive the same level of rehabilitation, but is given some basis for his repugnant acts. Hurt people hurt people. And George was hurt, physically and mentally, by his mother. Whipped into submission and frenzied revenge, physically whipped, mentally whipped, he tells you this well before his reveal as murderer. But at the time, it's presented as gaining sympathy for the character, not establishing motive for crime. It's one of the many things the game gives you before its final reveal. George shows you his scars towards the beginning of the game. The map of the Galaxy of Terror Bar shows a locked off secret area, later revealed to be a sex dungeon used by the murderer and the victims. These things are all here to see, just disconnected from establishing the truth by themselves, often obscured by subterfuge in the story or distraction from the sheer strangeness of the game world itself. It's these things hiding under the surface that mimic the very same in real-world small towns or villages. Honest people and small lives right next to unspoken family violence and abuse. Picturesque postcards of rural paradise hiding their bored teenage inhabitants often left with nothing to do but drugs and each other. Deadly Premonition ratchets up this to a fantastical level, but the premise, like at the beginning of David Lynch's Blue Velvet, that there is this loud, murky undergrowth to this safe and stable life is a sound one. One of the game's best show-don't-tell moments is George's house. Early on in the game, it's possible to visit George for a side quest, and also advisable as completion of the quest grants the fast travel mechanic. And York meets him at his front door, George just allowing himself to creak through a partially open slit of the doorframe. Most other characters invite York in, but George claims his mother is sick 
and keeps York at a distance. Different, but reasonable. It is only until much later on that we make our way inside, uninvited, to see that despite the classic American veneer outside, the inside of George's house is almost nothing at all. Empty of furniture and humanity, George lives in an unfinished house of unpainted plasterboard and plastic sheets. Heading down to the basement, we find the statement of a serial killer, an uncushioned bed for sleeping, a wall covered in pictures of Emily, and in a separate area, we find his mother, long dead and with a flower growing from her corpse. It's here that we could attribute all of the misery in Greenvale to be this tragic and terrible story of this man. But it's where deadly premonition takes a further lurch. Seemingly unsatisfied with weaving an intricate story of murder mystery, the story moves towards a supernatural cosmic horror. The tragedy befalling this town isn't the result of man's evil, but is in fact the influence of something otherworldly of an entity beyond humanity that has been playing with this town for generations, for reasons beyond our comprehension or reasoning, something that has infected the soil, the air, York's own childhood. Forrest Kaysen arrives in town not long after York and is the only other guest to share the hotel with him. He plods around, chubby and jolly, and has quite a busy routine for a character in the game. He appears from time to time in the plot, but usually with airtight alibi and reason. But if you follow him around the game world, out of missions, you can see him appear and involve himself with all manner of characters. Or perhaps the pronouns would be, it involves itself. Because Kaysen isn't a man at all. Rather, a demonic entity in the shape of one that has used this town as a base to launch misery, madness, and death upon humanity. Kaysen's reveal and the effect on the plot is truly what transcends deadly premonition from a pastiche creation into an original work that inspires imitation on its own. For a start, the revelation of the purpose of the character completely breaks the traditional story arc structure adhered to by so many other texts. Kaysen being a demon and the impact of it on the story appear after the action has already risen, climaxed, and seemingly resolved. Suddenly our tension rises again, sharply and almost in a different genre to what we've been situated in up until that moment. For countless untold generations, what we know as Forrest Kaysen has been arriving in town, bringing with him seeds that can only grow under special situations. The situation being that they sprout from the abdomens of humans who have been forced to consume the seeds and gestate the plants until they burst forth from their bodies and drain the life force from them in a hideous, inhuman death. This town is littered with red trees, and their appearance has been achieved through the deaths of characters such as George's mother, and indeed, Agent York's own. Kaysen has appeared at times and unleashed gas on the town driving its town folk to mass frenzy and death, and he had lured George towards committing his murders through false promises of immortality. And more, all seemingly without impunity or reason. Now Kaysen, entrusted by York with Emily's care as he went to confront George, has turned Emily into soil for his latest seedling. We find her dazed, weak, and close to the end, the sapling already sprouting, and any chance of survival impossible. It is a position Morgan's own father found his wife in, in a scene that the young Morgan had witnessed with great confusion and trauma. The implications of Kaysen's time with Emily are disturbing, and the lack of agency afforded to the player in regards to their choices deliberately frustrating. In an earlier gameplay segment where you take control of Emily, you're tasked with running around the streets with Kaysen, following his dog to pick up a scent while he spins you a lie about his backstory. Even when we know it is a lie, we're forced to listen. Now here with Emily close to an inhuman death, we're presented with options. Shoot her, shoot yourself, or shoot Kaysen. Choosing the last two results in mission failure, but choosing the first option, the option that I as myself felt was the only humane one, also results in a failure. Years ago, when Morgan's mother had been implanted by Kaysen, Morgan's own father had failed to react, resulting in him watching on as his wife was taken from him 
and then turning the gun on himself, just before remarking that one day his own son will have to do what he couldn't and purge from this world what should not exist in it. Morgan, as it turns out, is as weak as his father. And despite Emily's insistence and suffering, or the player's wants, is unable to take her life. Thankfully, in a scene that reassumes her own control of herself, Emily is able to rip the sprouting tree from her body, killing both it and herself in the process. It provides a sliver of something less than totally dreadful at what is an otherwise miserable end to a life. At this moment, most players of the game are spinning. Characters that we knew have all been rendered into shapes unfamiliar and unpleasant. The plot has been resolved, but on the very next page, we've fallen into an enormous new world, a new category, having to comprehend how far this story and game is willing to go to be original, to transcend Twin Peaks and evolve into something else, something exciting and memorable. I had a hard time with this segment. That's the idea. And after first playing it, it was difficult to shake from my mind. Then it stayed and I began to appreciate it for how unique and how different it was. And then suddenly I realized, oh, this game actually is quite good. Great. And no amount of bad driving that led to that moment detracted from it. The revelation about Kaysen, the seeds and trees and Morgan's mother triggers a deep emotional response in him. One that leads to the revelation of Zack's identity. In case anyone thought the plot wasn't original or eccentric enough up until this point, we are told that we have actually been playing as York, who is himself the imagined friend of Zack. And that Zack is now ready to reappear on the surface. Zack, who resembles York, but with white hair, heterochromatic eyes, and a long, deep, horizontal scar in his face, assumes the body of the playable character as York takes a backseat to encourage and motivate him. Alluded to, but not fully explained here, is the concept of the Red Room and White Room. The Red, a kind of dream state to provoke awareness and memory, and the White, a kind of purgatory safe space that Zack had accessed and hidden in when attacked by Kaysen as a child. Our limitations to learn about or understand all of these concepts, delivered in such a small time at this moment in the story, is completely overloading, but the originality and creativity on display here cannot be overstated or celebrated enough. To anyone who hasn't played through the game, Understanding what happens at this point in the story would be very difficult, but only faring marginally better are those who have. Such is the level of wonderful strangeness on display here. It's through this that Deadly Premonition shows it has earned its reputation as a cult experience in every sense of the word, through reveling in badness, brilliance, and total otherworldly uniqueness. So then, is it fun to play? Yes. Well, I had fun playing it at least. Fun in many senses. It's varied, funny, replayable. There's a bit of Grand Theft Auto or Shenmue to Deadly Premonition in that entire missions might revolve around combat while others conversation or driving. You might be fetching items or bashing out quick time event prompts. Rarely does Deadly Premonition leave you to repeat the exact same thing twice in a row. 
You might cycle back later, of course, but by then, hopefully, the returning gameplay mechanic comes around as something welcome to revisit. Some of the exact mechanics and methods of control are questionable, but in fairness, only add to the unique feeling and humour of doing them. Two immediate sections here spring to mind. The first being fishing. Fishing is a mostly optional activity, though it is required for one section of the game, and is performed by York standing in a fishing area wherein he'll cast a line and wait. Randomly then, the fish will strike. Or not, as often is the way with real fishing. When York has something on the line, a game not unlike a slot machine mechanic triggers, where the player has to stop a moving cursor on the desired image as music switches from a slow, pleasant whistling to drum and bass. As the images scroll, we have the opportunity to land on things such as fish, bullets, a present, and a shocked depiction of Emily's face. Respectively, these will award fish, bullets, trading cards, and a broken fishing line. As far as fishing in video games go, this falls on the unrealistic and strange side of things. But, like most things in Deadly Premonition, once you figure them out or are told what to actually do to succeed, you find yourself enjoyably completing them. The second gameplay feature that rises to the forefront of my mind when thinking about how Deadly Premonition plays and plays to be different is the chase mechanic for the raincoat killer. The raincoat killer is a strange character in Deadly Premonition, in that sometimes he appears and triggers a QTE action that's failure will result in instant death, and other times he simply meanders by. As a player, I never really seemed to fear the raincoat killer when he appeared during gameplay, as the outcome of his appearance seemed too broad. In his most deadly mood, though, he'll cause York to run away, triggering a an on-rails, dual-perspective, quick-time event race. York, now facing the camera, is controlled by running through waggling the control stick from side to side. And waggle you must, as the raincoat killer is bearing down from behind, his own POV broadcast in a smaller screen, playing simultaneously. Mechanically, this almost feels like a Mario Party minigame, while visually almost a scary movie parody of somebody escaping a killer. As the player waggles the control stick, York will run until impeded by a box or small ledge. The player will then be tasked to push a different button to move the box, which is an achingly slow animation, or to calmly step up on a small ledge, then run to the other edge of the ledge, and then calmly step down off of it. The animation from York stepping, intentionally or not, depicting the most unlikely of physical responses a person would make when running from a person with an axe. There's ratcheting up tension so the audience is on edge, and then there is bypassing the limit of tension and crossing into the realm of incredulity or frustration. Audiences watching horror movies shouting, move, pick up the gun, go, what are you doing, are examples of this that most of us have experienced at some time in our lives. But an audience feeling is an audience affected. And an audience affected means something in the text has worked to trigger them. These sections are not particularly scary or tense like most things in Deadly Premonition. They're too strange and overwhelming to allow you time to process fright, but they certainly make you feel and also make you play a different way in this smorgasbord of gameplay provided in this title. So there was a moment that I knew. I had re-entered a combat arena by my own choice because I knew it would be fun to replay. I wasn't playing this game for the laughs or memed moments. I was playing it and enjoying the story, but not for it. I was playing this game to have fun. Deadly Premonition is fun and weird and bad and great. It has a story both recognisable and not, drawn from inspirations and also creating something new. But it is fun, and I can't stress how much I was surprised by that fact, because when it starts, the fun does lean more on the strangeness. That its cult audience was generated because it's so bad it's good. It's a Plan 9 or The Room. But by the end, when you've looked back on how everything played out, how the world unfurled around you and reveled in its deep creativity, suddenly we're in cult territory more akin to Donnie Darko or Blade Runner. Cult creations, so good they're good. 
And in between, the systems at first strange and overbearing click. And now you, in full control and understanding of York, are actually having fun in this game that you picked up because you saw the YouTube video of the funny dining room table conversation at the beginning of the game. I'm not patient, but I will fall into something if it provides depth. And I'm willing to look past rough edges, but not so much that I would recommend anyone slog through something unfun, unplayable, or broken. I recommend that you do allow yourself to fall into deadly premonition. And not just for the sake of strangeness or irony, but because at a time, it will click and allow you to experience not only a deeply original gaming experience, but a deeply enjoyable one as well. Swery has gone on to create more titles, as well as a sequel for Deadly Premonition, which I have yet to play, but is currently most regarded for this game. As generations of gaming pass, games like this, from mid-sized studios released onto home consoles, are a dying if not extinct breed. Deadly Premonition, despite being released one generation later, reminds me of the PlayStation 2 era, a time where smaller teams could release very specific visions into the gaming market that would sit alongside major titles on the store shelf. A time before the industry split into massive budget titles with all manner of corporate meddling on one side and digital indie releases that, while often beautiful and true, now exist in a sea of competitors where only a rare few are plucked into the public consciousness. The technology demands of modern console releases, the cost, the aversion to risk and unfamiliarity mean that Deadly Premonition would not have a space to be created today. It would either be a shrunk down indie offering without the scope and scale, or an overly polished big budget release put out with unfriendly market expectations. That makes this game, this beguiling, enigmatic creation, even more special. And for those that have not yet played it, I hope you give it a chance. For those of you that have, my fellow cult members, I hope you've enjoyed this revisit to Greenvale. Solo number one, Deadly Premonition, done. Next, Solo number two, where we swap out Greenvale for Clocktown and dive deep into the Legend of Zelda, Majora's Mask. Thank you.